morning. Go ahead and have a seat, please. Well, as I get set up, for those of you who were here last week, and in case you didn't read the bulletin, I am not Al Tassan, okay? <laughs> and the reason why I say that, you know, there were a couple of occasions, and we had a great time with Al last week. We, Julie and I spent probably two and a half hours with that man. He's just a great man of God, and a great message last week. But on more than a couple of occasions, you know, we were standing side by side, and we had... I had a couple people come up and say, you know, you guys could be brothers. Because <laughs> he's got the Filipino background, uh, as I do. And on one of the occasions, he turns to me and goes, yeah, but I'm the good-looking one. <laughs> and of course, in my response and brotherly love, I turned to him and said, yeah, well, I'm taller than you. <laughs> Folks, it is good to be in front of you again this, this morning. It's been quite a while since I had the opportunity to just share God's message with you. Um, it's Actually, it's been six years to the day. July 14th, 2013 was the last time that God gave me the blessing to, to stand in front of you and, and share his message. So, And that was uh, uh, the sermon that I gave um, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And, and it was right after the time that Julie and I find, found out that she had breast cancer. And you know, praise God, because he answered all of our prayers. Uh, my wife is, is cured from cancer, and she's been cancer-free for six years, so praise the Lord for that, and we thank you. We thank you uh, for all of your prayers. You know, and I, of course, you know, there's, there's, there's always that little bit of anxiety when you, you know you're going to get in front of and speak to a large crowd, but, you know, there's so much excitement knowing that I get to stand in front of you and talk about God's word for two hours. I mean, how exciting is that? <laughs> Ushers, lock the doors because we're going to go for a walk. All right, so, you know, this morning I want to share the message that God has placed on my heart. And, you know, when we take a look at our world today and we observe all that's going on, you know, it could be a, a scary thing to think about. And the fact that, you know, there was about 60 of us in the church here that just finished going through the real-life discipleship study, you know, there was one thing, one takeaway that I had going through that study that really stuck to me, and that is the word intentional. And the thought kept coming back to me as I was going through the, uh, the study for 12 weeks was, are you being an intentional disciple? Are you intentional with every single relationship that God has placed in your life? So that is what our discussion is going, the topic of our, uh, the message is going to be uh, this morning. And you know the saying that Pastor Kurt always says, discipleship is not one of the things that we do. Discipleship is the only thing that we do, right? So this morning I'm going to address uh, four questions. Um, the first one is, what is a disciple? The second one is, how important is discipleship for us? What is our role in discipleship? And then why should we be focusing on discipleship today? So let's start with the basics. First one, what is a disciple? You know, most people, when, when you think about disciple, I think the mind automatically goes to those group of apostles that walked with Jesus uh, while he was walking on earth with his ministry. And that is true. But the true definition of the word disciple, it goes back to the classroom. So disciple just simply means student or learner. 
And in Jesus' day, young people, you know, they didn't go to college because there weren't any colleges back in that day. If you wanted to be a shepherd, you signed on as an apprentice um, and were instructed underneath a chief shepherd. And then you just learned from him, and eventually you became a shepherd in your own right. If you wanted to become a lawyer, you would study under a lawyer. You, uh, you'd learn to argue by listening to him argue. You'd learn to bargain by watching him bargain. And you became an experienced lawyer that way. You became his disciple. So it's not unusual for the men who followed Jesus Christ to be called his disciples, because for three and a half years, they followed Jesus up and down Galilee. They were watching him. They were listening to him. They were observing. They were asking questions. They were really just drinking in everything that the master did and said. Now, Jesus, of course, he had a threefold plan on how he would train his disciples. First was teaching by watching. The next, he would teach or have them learn by actually doing something. And then there's always the teaching by teaching others. And that's why the Great Commission, when you take a look at Matthew chapter 28, it says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. So when you think about it, the entire history of the Christian church for over 2,000 years has been nothing more than that, going and making disciples and teaching them what Jesus has taught us. So the next question is, how important is discipleship for God's people? Well, I want you to listen to this prayer. I'm going to read it, and this comes out of John 17, verses 4 through 9. And this is what it says. It says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence for the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know, now they know that everything you gave me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that it came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Take a look at the very first sentence in that passage. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What work is Jesus talking about here? I think when most people read this passage, they think of the cross. But it couldn't have been the cross. When you study the text here, after all, he stated the work that he had completed already to his father. He wouldn't go to the cross until the next day. He wouldn't be nailed to the cross until the day after. This is the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the work that Jesus was talking about in this passage was about making disciples. And many people believe that Jesus came only to die and be resurrected from the dead. And what they often leave out is the work that Jesus did in making disciples. And maybe it's because if we focus on on Jesus' example of putting priority on making disciples, then that puts the onus on us to do something, right? I mean, when we take a look at what Jesus did on the cross, we can't possibly have the expectation of following his actions there. But we can go and make disciples. So that does put an expectation on us to actually go and do something. And many times, if we're honest with each other, we want to duck that responsibility. Well, that involves talking to people, right? You mean I'm going to have to get vulnerable? I'm going to have to 
open up myself and, and be transparent with other people. You mean I got to move out of my comfortable place? Do I really need to do that? So those are some of the natural thoughts that come to our mind when we talk about discipling others. But my friends, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is more than just going to church once or twice a week. To get excited because the preacher moved you or because the choir inspired you is nice, but that is not spiritual growth. To enjoy the fellowship of, of friends in the Christian life, that is a wonderful thing, but that is not discipleship. To enjoy, to be involved in, in a Bible study and to study God's word and to really grow in your wisdom and knowledge of who God is, that is only the half of it. The goal and the cornerstone of our activity, that which brings God the most glory, is for us to become disciples. God's goal is not just salvation. That's just the introduction to God's goal. His desire is that those who are saved, that they become disciples, teachers of how to live our lives according to the way that Jesus teaches us. And it's not simply enough to say, well, you know, I'm on my way to heaven. I think the question for all of us is, are we becoming like the one who is taking us to heaven? That's discipleship, and that's what Christ wants from us. So discipleship, it is this developmental process of that progressively brings a person from being spiritually dead to spiritual maturity. And then those people are then to reproduce that process in someone else. So our lives ought to be about discipling others, about teaching others on how to become more like Jesus Christ. That is our highest calling and purpose. Everything else, every other mission or cause must come second to that. And that is according to scriptures. So, what is our personal role in regards to making disciples, helping the church make disciples? Well, I think first and foremost, we are to be the reflection of love and mercy, the love of mercy and of Jesus. We have to extend love. We have to extend mercy and grace to everyone that we come into contact with. That means whether or not we want to, whether or not we feel like it, and even whether or not we feel that person deserves it or not. You know, after thinking about that question for a while, uh, for me personally, it was really quite simple. And I think this also holds true for everybody in here. Discipleship starts in the home. I, which means that I must support, I must honor, and I must encourage my wife. That means that I must teach my three daughters, and now their husband and boyfriends, which way to go. That was so encouraging. <laughs> but I need to show the love of Jesus to everyone that I meet by serving them and trying to, to provide for as many needs that I can for that person. And then speak the hard truth, but always speak it in love if necessary. It's pretty simple on paper, but you know what? It's pretty hard to live out in our daily walk because it means that I have to bite my tongue when I want to respond harshly to somebody, somebody who has just defended me, that means that if I don't have anything nice to say, then I probably shouldn't say anything at all. It means spending more time in the Word, learning about how Jesus responded 
to hurting people. And here's a hint. It wasn't by trashing them. It wasn't by calling them names. And it wasn't by laying this big law of morality on them. It means knowing enough about the word to be able to speak to someone who is struggling and who truly needs encouragement. It means getting over myself and remembering that I am just as equally as bad as the worst person that I can possibly think of. And the only reason now that God, when he looks down upon me, he doesn't see the old Anthony anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, period. You know, as a man of God, as the spiritual leader in, in my family, has mentioned the discipleship, it starts in the home. And because the impact of the father that he has on a home, on a marriage, or on a church, or in a community, cannot be emphasized enough. And men, this is a message for you. Know that you are leaving a legacy. We are leaving a legacy. Every action, every decision, every conversation that we have, we are shaping lives. But we also need to understand that we are impacting destinies. Our children watch us. Our wives watch us. Our friends and neighbors, they watch us. We are leaving a legacy. You know, I was reading a story an interesting story a while ago that elephant aggression has really become a big problem in many parts of the world in recent decades. Adolescent male elephants, you know, they've been running wild, they've been attacking one another, they would attack other animals, and on occasion they would also attack humans. Well, as scientists tried to figure out what was going on here, they realized that the elephant's social structure has been destroyed, mostly due to poaching. Elder elephants are missing, especially the adult male, uh, the bulls, who are the favorite targets of the poachers. And so when the South African park rangers, they flew in some adult male elephants, and as soon as those animals hit the ground, they started flapping their ears, they would raise their trunks, and they would bellow for days. But you know what? Order was restored after only a few days. The young males, they just got in line, and they stopped their destruction. And the very same thing is true for, for humans as well. When men are absent, when they fail to lead, what happens? Society erodes. And that's why, you know, it's, it's why nearly all the inmates in prisons, if you do the, the analysis and take a look at the information, the data, they come from homes where the father was either absent or neglectful or abusive. And it's why overwhelmingly percentages of high, high school dropouts had absent fathers, which means society's problems are not just society's problems. They are the church's problems. They are our problems. Which leads us to the next question. Why do we need to focus on discipleship today? Look at the world that we are living in. You know, we live in a world today that is, has been embracing technology as the answer to all of our problems. We have never been so connected to each other through social media as we are today. Get this, worldwide, 269 billion emails are sent every single day. 
And the most frustrating part about this, half of those end up in my inbox. <laughs> but that does not include, it doesn't include text messages. That does not include tweets or Facebook posts or any other social media at all. And that, that's just, um, just mind-blowing to even think about. We have the choice. We have Facebook. There's Instagram. There's Facebook Messenger. There's Twitter, there's Pinterest, Snapchat, Reddit, WhatsApp, Tumblr, Facebook groups, Google Hangouts, Messenger by Google, GroupMe, Discord, Skype, Kick, Line, Telegram, VK, and WeChat. That's just to name a few. <laughs> Currently, there are 244 million users of social media in the United States today. 88% of America's young adults between the ages of 18 to 29 use social media every single day. Day. And yet, as connected as Americans are today, why do so many people feel more isolated, more alone, and more disconnected than ever before? In a recent study by the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, suicide rates rose in all but one state between the years 1999 and 2016. They saw increases across all age, gender, race, and ethnic groups. In more than half of all the deaths, more than half in all the deaths in 29 states, the people had no known mental health issues before they took their own life. Nearly 45,000 suicides occurred just in the year 2016 alone. That is more than twice the number of homicides, making it the 10th leading cause of death in America. Among eight people ages 15 to 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death. You know what, two states, this has surprised me. When I was take, doing the study, which state would you think had the most suicides? I mean, I'm not going to sit here and give you guys 50 choices or, or, or options. <laughs> but what I found out through my study, Montana had the most. And that's, that shocked me. I thought, why in the world? And then when I looked at who was on the bottom of the list, which was equally surprising, Nevada. And I'm thinking, come on, they got Las Vegas, they got Reno. So it's just really puzzling on some of the statistics and what, you, what conclusions you draw from it. Did you know that the United States incarcerates more people than any other country? According to the International Center for Prison Studies, our country currently has more than 2.2 million people behind bars. That works out to be about 22% of the total global population of inmates, which is startling when you think about it because the United States makes up about only 4.4% of the world population. But wait, my friends, the news gets even better. According to recent statistics, the U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate. 57 out of 1,000 young women between the ages of 15 and 19 are pregnant at any given time. New Zealand is next at 51. Then that's followed by England and Wales with 47. Switzerland had the lowest rate of teen pregnancy at 8 per 1,000 women. And then let's not forget about the drug epidemic that we are in today. We are in the midst of an opiate crisis. You hear all the talk and all the news on TV about 
how it's a homeless problem. Well, it's not because of afford, lack of affordable housing. It's not because people don't have work. This is a drug problem, plain and simple. Starting in the 1990s with the increase of prescription painkillers, the opioid epidemic has become a modern health crisis. It has been likened to a plague just due to the high number of overdose deaths left in its wake. Today, there are over 2.1 million Americans who have an opioid addiction. And an average, get this, an average, 115 Americans die each and every day because of an opioid-related overdose. And then, of course, we have the redefining of marriage and gender and sexual morality. And that seems to be an argument that just seems to be increasing in intensity every single day. Now, why do I share all this wonderful, glorious news of the world that we live in? You know, I wonder, well, what if I just stopped the sermon right there? What would happen? You'd probably have 300 people walking out of church like this, <laughs> totally discouraged. Well, I'm sharing this news because our moral compass is broke. And there's mounting evidence that many people today can't take the pressure of life. They just can't handle it. You know, they get stressed by the constant flow of information, and most of that information that we receive is negative. It feels like the national blood pressure has gone up several hundred points just in over the last few years. Critical impatience has replaced our usual self-assurance. And we see it every day when we drive in traffic, don't we? Every day. You know, in earlier days, if you paused at a green light, people just waited patiently for you to get going again. These days, uh-uh. They hit the horn, and they hit it again, and it again. In fact, I found myself in that situation on the way down to church this morning. <laughs> the light turned green, and the person didn't go, but I, I held off. I fought the temptation. My hand went like this, but I said, no. <laughs> You're preaching this morning, just remember. <laughs> but you know, today, these days, you can get shot if you cut off the wrong person. Right? We get angry quicker. We're stressed out. And we feel like the whole world is spinning out of control. And most people, truth be told, they've lost hope in their lives. Why is that? Well, it's because they do not know, they do not have the truth and the love of Jesus Christ in their life. It seems like everyone is looking for the truth today, in today's world. No one is sure what to believe anymore. They don't even know that the news that they hear every day is real or fake. And that's where we come in. Because we have the truth. We have the truth that the world seeks and the world needs. It is the truth that provides peace that surpasses all understanding. And it is in here. And that is where our responsibility is. Because my friends, this book has the power to change lives. It changed this one. This book has the power to pick up a drunkard out of the gutter. It has the power to restore marriages. It has the power to make saints out of infidels. It has the power to give hope to the murderer on death row. There is no other book that has the plan of salvation. There is no other book that will tell you how to get to heaven. And we have it. Now, for those of us who do have this truth and have experienced the power behind it, that responsibility lies upon us 
to share it with the world. That is God's plan. It has been God's plan from the very beginning. But too often we think that we don't have what it takes to be fishers of people, right? We think, well, we need to have specific skills. We need to have certain talents to draw people to Christ. We try to convince ourselves, well, God, he's, he'll just find somebody else who's more qualified, who's more skilled in that area. I don't have to worry about that. I don't find that in the Bible. But I want to take a moment to shine, on some light, some, shine some light on some of the original disciples. These 12 men are usually highly regarded. Most of, well, most of them, except for one, are highly regarded men. They had great strengths, but you know, these guys also had a lot of weaknesses as well. They got on each other's nerves. They... They were sometimes dense and stubborn and stuck in their own preconceived ideas. They also wavered in their faith and their commitment to Jesus. Almost every variety of Christian is represented in this band of apostles when you study them. And if you study them closely, you'll see that they have traits the same as yours. We have the doubter who can find themselves in Thomas. We have the Uh, the opinionated, impulsive person that can find themselves in Peter. Andrew, he was was a cautious businessman. Then we have John, who was understanding and he was compassionate. Of course, there was Judas, who was fickle and insincere and a hypocrite. We are all represented in this group. In fact, there are some of us who are represented by the entire group. Because the apostles were very human people, just like us. And just as Jesus took these diamonds in the rough and he polished them into gems, God wants us to reach our spiritual potential by spending time with Jesus. But even though these apostles were different, there was one thing that united them, and it was their faith in Jesus Christ. And God used them in ways that was consistent with their personalities, consistent with their skills, and their talents to get the church off to a good start. And God wants to use us in the very same way. The only question that remains is this. Are we available? It always comes down to that, isn't it? You know, there's a story I was reading about the great preacher D.L. Moody. who went, One day he went into an art gallery in Chicago. And he sees this picture. He sees this painting on the wall. And it's uh, called The Rock of Ages. Some of you may be familiar with it. In fact, we'll show a picture. There's a picture of it right there. And the painting showed a person with both hands clinging to a cross firmly embedded in the rock. And then while the stormy sea smashed against the rock, the person clung tightly with both hands to the cross. You know what struck me about this, this uh, painting? The image on the bottom. What do you see? You see a hand coming out of the water. Years later, D.L. Moody discovered another painting. Very similar to the first. This one showed a person in a storm clinging tightly to the cross, but this one was different. This picture had the person clinging to the cross with one hand, but at the same time reaching out to a person who was about ready to drown in the storm. Here's the question. Which picture depicts you and I? My dear friends, I have no doubts, no doubts that almost everybody in here 
loves our almighty God, or at the very least, you are interested in God because you wouldn't be here today. And for those of you who are here today who have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, a decision will need to be made today, without a doubt. My prayer for you is that if you are in that position, is that before the day is over, you will come to the conclusion that you do indeed need a Savior, that you are tired of carrying around the shame of sin's past, that you are tired of just being frustrated and trying to figure things out on your own, that you want some meaning, you want purpose in your life, purpose that extends beyond this life into eternity. And if you do want to make that decision, we are here to help you with that today. Either way, you will make a decision. Because even if you listen to all this and you come to the conclusion that, well, yeah, maybe I'll think about it later, that is still a decision. The choice is yours, and it is yours alone. But if you do want to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, come see me afterwards, after the service. It would be the biggest honor and blessing that could ever happen to me. We are here to help you walk to the cross and accept Jesus. So if you haven't done that today, today is the day. And you wonder why? Because I think you're here for a reason. It is a divine appointment by our creator that you are here and that you are listening to these words. Now, for those of us who have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, then now we have to make a self-assessment. And maybe we have been holding on to the cross a little bit too much with two hands. And if that's the case, then it is a high time for a change. It's time that we reach out to those around us in the storm who are truly about ready to drown. We need to change from being people simply clinging both hands to the cross to people who have one hand firmly embraced on that cross and another hand extended to those who are drowning in the storm of life around us. And they're everywhere. This is the change that we most need to make. This is the change that won't be easy, but this is the change that Jesus wants to bring to our lives. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, are we really reaching out and inviting others to find eternal life through Jesus Christ? Are we really throwing out our nets and being fishers of people? Two questions that struck me as I went through the discipleship study. When was the last time you led a person to Jesus Christ? Second question was this. When was the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? I ran into a poem I want to share with you, and it struck me. When I read these words, I thought, wow, how many opportunities have I missed? The poem is titled, I Cannot Call You Friend. The author is unknown, and here's, what it, here's how it goes. My friend, I stand in judgment now, and I feel that you are to blame somehow. On earth, I walked with you day by day, but never did you point the way. You knew the Lord in his truth and his glory, but never did you share the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safely to him. You taught me many things. This is true. 
I called you friend, and I trusted you. But I have learned, and now it's too late, that you could have kept me from this fate. We walked by day and talked by night, and yet you showed me not the light. You let me live and love and die. You knew I would never live on high. Yes, I called you friend in life. I trusted you through joy and strife. And yet on coming to this end, I cannot call you my friend. You know, in my opinion, I think the most terrifying passage in all of the Bible is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, because it describes exactly what happens when the unsaved dead are finally raised and stand before our mighty God. I'm going to read, read the words to you. Then I saw a white, great, uh, great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to the things that they had done as written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Okay, I want you guys to do a favor for me. I want everybody in this room to close their eyes for a few moments, okay? Close your eyes. You in the third row from the back, fourth person over your eyes are open. Please close your eyes. All right, so try to imagine it. An entire lake that is filled with waves of burning fire. A lake as vast as an ocean. A lake with no shoreline, only wave after wave of burning sulfur and brimstone. In this lake, unbelievers are cast one by one, screaming, pleading, cursing. Their voices drowned by the crackling of the flames as they enter the burning water. Choking, burning smoke fills the lungs. Fire hotter than any earthly fire engulfs the human body. Pain, unlike any human pain, courses through the burning veins. Voices cry out, but no one hears. People sink, but do not find the bottom. Fire, smoke, and poisonous fumes are everywhere. Here and there, ghastly hunks of humanity desperately swim through the flames. Although they swim forever, they never reach the shore. No ships sail the lake of fire. No fishermen ever visit. No vacationers ever come this way. And as you stand in the distance, two striking facts come before you. First, there is no sun. Only an eerie orange-yellow glow that seems to come from within the lake itself. A hideous, hellish discharge that seems to come out of the bowels of evil. There is no light. There is no sun. Only darkness and shadows. But then you notice something else. Although the fire is burning across the lake and although the lake is filled with people, no one is consumed. What kind of fire is it that burns but does not destroy? This is the lake of fire. This is the final destiny of the unsaved. You can open your eyes now. If this picture of the lake of fire is not literal, that must mean that the reality is so much more terrible than human words can describe. We can't make the mistake of trying to humanize hell by playing down the images. 
The Bible uses fire, darkness, and torment too many times to just for us just to say simply, well, that's not literal. It means something. And the something it means is so eternally terrible that only these awful words and pictures can just remotely begin to convey the ultimate meaning. But I do want to clarify a point at, at this time. I am, not, I am sure, I am absolutely certain that the description of the lake of fire that I just read isn't even close to reality. But this much I am sure, that the reality is much worse than anything I or anyone else can ever imagine. This is what the Bible means by everlasting conscious punishment. It is the final destiny of those who do not know Jesus Christ. Now, let's make this more personal. It is the final destiny for our friends, for our neighbors, for our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, and even our children if they die without Jesus Christ. Let that sink into your mind. The reality of hell, my friends, is more than just some theoretical doctrine. There is a place that is reserved in the lake of fire for anyone who rejects God and his son Jesus. And this is, of course, unless a person makes a conscious decision and choice to put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. You know what? You don't hear Christians talk about hell like this anymore. But we should. People need to know. And my fear is that we dilute the message of the gospel if we leave out the part of what we're being saved from. And if you think about it, how can you truly appreciate the good news if you don't fully understand the bad news? Now, I want to close this message on the topic of, of sharing the gospel. After all, that is a big part of what disciples do, right? I turn to John chapter 9, and we read about how Jesus healed a man who was born physically and spiritually blind. Now, it is possible that our Lord's encounter with a blind man happened as he was leaving the temple that day. And as Jesus passed by, he noticed a man who was blind. And there is no indication that this man cried out to Jesus or that anyone drew our Lord's attention to him. In fact, quite the reverse seems to be the case here. But from the beginning to the end, healing of this man was initiated by our Lord. Now, at this point of the story, the man, he knew very little about Jesus. He didn't know anything more about Jesus than his name, and he knew that he had healed him. The healed man, he's brought to the Pharisees, which really was a protocol to verify if a miracle had actually taken place. They immediately begin to question the man. They want to know, how did, he, how did this man receive his sight? They want to know who healed him, and they want to know also, what does this man believe about Jesus? And they tell the healed man that Jesus can't possibly come from God because Jesus is a sinner. He broke the law. He healed on the Sabbath day. And they seem to just miss the point that the man's healing is a, it's a miracle, a miracle that had never been even heard of since the beginning of time. But for some reason, it just does not matter to these guys, the Pharisees. The only thing they can do is criticize Jesus for doing it on the wrong day. You know, they're not even sure that this man was healed, so they start to question him. 
or his parents, actually. And they ask him, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, his parents answer, well, we know he's our son. We know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Why don't you ask him? He's old enough to speak for himself. Gee, thanks, Mom and Dad. Appreciate the support there. And when the meeting with the parents didn't prove helpful, they come back to the man, the healed man, and they say, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. But the blind man said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. What I do know is this, that I was blind, but now I see. He didn't understand how he was healed. He didn't know about all the theology or the theology that was behind the healing. He didn't even have a real clear picture of who Jesus was. I mean, he thought Jesus was just a prophet. But there was one thing that this man understood. He was blind, but now he could see. That he knew. My friends, this is one of the greatest models of how to bear witness as a believer. You know, there are so many of us who are afraid to, to say anything about our faith because we think that we are going to be drugged into this deep theological argument that's going to be way over our heads. But witnessing is simply doing what this man did, saying what Jesus did for you. Once I was blind, now I can see. That's what a witness is. Remember this. You are the world's greatest authority on what has happened to you. As someone has well said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with only an argument. And when you stand on your experience, there is not a person on this planet who can deny what the Lord has done in your life, which means that you are a powerful, positive witness for Jesus Christ. And this blind man teaches us great things in that regard. Now, I will have to say this. I will have to make this note. Most of us are never going to become a Billy Graham or a D.L. Moody, but that's perfectly okay because you know what? God hasn't called us to be them, those guys. Our call is to just give the gospel to those who are receiving and invite others to join us in the family of God. You know, I don't think we should worry too much if we're successful or not when we share the message. Our job is just to share the gospel. It's God's job to change the hearts. That's his work. And Billy Graham, we need to also understand this. Billy Graham wasn't always successful. You know, I remember hearing a story about when he was in a, a small town when he asked a boy how to get to the post office. Well, after giving or getting the directions from the small boy, Mr. Graham invited him to come to his crusade that evening. You can hear me tell everyone how to get to heaven, he told the boy. And the boy's response? Mm, I don't think I'm going to be there, mister. You don't even know your way to the post office. <laughs> Isn't that cool? But Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Our part is to follow him. His part is to make us fishers of people. You know, when we think about it, our Savior went fishing for us, and he caught us by his grace, didn't he? And Jesus considered all of us keepers. He didn't want to throw us back into the murky waters of sin and unbelief. He kept fishing for us, and he snagged us with his love. 
And Jesus didn't use a cane pole or a graphite rod and Zebco reel. He used a rugged plank of wood, some rusty nails for his pole and hook, and he used himself as the lure. And he allowed himself to be hung on the cross for the entire world to see the power behind his love. Amen.